On this episode of AvTalk, United orders 200 electric regional aircraft. Porter finally confirms its E-195 E-2 order. And Boeing is dealing with fresh 787 quality issues. Hello and welcome to episode 120 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. And hello, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. I am well. It's the middle of the summer. And yes, that is the season that I have just described. Thank you for that meteorological update. That's what this podcast is all about. Uh, yes. Let's Before we dive into a long, long list of things that we need to get through, I thought episode 120 would be a good marker to kind of reintroduce folks to the podcast if they haven't listened before, if you're just joining us, or if you've listened to a couple episodes and you're still trying to figure out what this is all supposed to be about. This is mostly a podcast about the commercial side of aviation. Jason and I have our expertise and our interest really in large aircraft that carry lots of people or smaller aircraft that carry too many people for comfort's sake. And so that's generally what we talk about. Will we stray into space adjacent territory in this episode? Yes, we will. Do we sometimes dip our toes in the world of military aviation? Very infrequently, but there's usually a good reason for it. But if you're new to the podcast, that's generally where we focus our efforts, and we hope you'll come along for the ride. And with that brief introduction, I will say, hello, electric aviation, Jason. Oh, hello, indeed. Maybe. Maybe, if certain conditions and requirements in the near future are met. so. Apparently, if you are running United Airlines at this point, your goal is to order every possible type of aircraft, fictional, real, hypothetical, possible, or anything otherwise at this point. If it's going to fly in the future, United wants a piece of it. And we've already seen them in the very recent past order electric VTOL aircraft, which are kind of like electric helicopters that can take off and land pretty much anywhere vertically. They've also put in very tentative, probably hypothetical orders for the exact opposite of that supersonic aircraft from Boom Aerospace. And now this week, United and its partner Mesa Airlines, one of its regional connection partners, have ordered 200 electric 19-seat aircraft manufactured by a company I hadn't heard of before two days ago, go Hart Aerospace, the ES-19. It looks like a electric propeller-driven version of like an Avro RJ. With four engines, so it's appropriate. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. It, it looks like a, an electric yeah, like, propeller-driven like a, a hybrid of a Beechcraft 1900D and an Avro. It's yeah. Odd. yeah. It's I mean, a cute yeah, little it's, looking thing. It's sporty. I'm calling it sporty. It's got winglets. Uh, it does. And I appreciate that. The thing I like that, I mean, looking at the renderings and what they've got, it's a T-tail, but the top of the vertical stabilizer goes above the horse. So it's kind of like a-, a lowercase lower, I was just going to say, it's a lowercase lower T-tail. T-tail. Yeah. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So 200, not again, much as we talked about with the boom order a few episodes ago, this is a firm belief that they are ordering the aircraft, 
but it's not a firm order for the aircraft. Yes, the, uh, this is, again, contingent to a whole host of opaque things, specifically this time around, if the aircraft meets United's safety requirements, if the aircraft meets United's business requirements, which could mean anything, and if it meets United's operating requirements, which again, could mean anything. Right. And so assuming all that happens, this aircraft could carry up to 19 passengers about 250 miles, maybe. Before the end of this decade. Before the end of this decade. And so, Jason, you were running some numbers and brought up a very interesting point. Let me back up. A couple of folks have looked at United's current route map and its historical route map. I believe Seth Miller is one of them who has run the numbers quite a bit on this on Twitter. Yeah, Seth Miller was doing it. And I think Ned Russell got into kind of backed things up into history as where previous service has kind of been cut based on it being non-economical with with current aircraft. But if you had a particular aircraft that could do that more economically, would service reappear? And so they've run some numbers and things like that and, and to find out where the aircraft could operate within United's route network. And so I thought that was... Interesting. But then, Jason, you started kind of playing with the idea. And this isn't obviously addressed in a press release that that got put out. And it's a question that'll be answered later. But I think it's an interesting question about, is that the effective range of the aircraft? Or is that the maximum range of the aircraft in you take off and you fly 400 kilometers, 250 miles, and then the batteries are empty? Or is that the cushioned or effective range where you can say, I can operate safely with, do you call it reserve power, reserve battery life, reserve kilowatt hours? I don't know what you call that at this point, but with reserves in order to divert to an alternate airport and then deal with that. So I, I think that's one of the interesting questions. And then the other one is, what happens if you divert with one of these aircraft? I mean, yeah, obviously, but- we're going to have to solve all these problems eventually because we need to move to a different kind of propulsion. But those are just two of the, I think, big issues very that, that valid we're thinking questions. about. Yeah, very valid questions. Mesa says that the aircraft will have a range of approximately 250 miles, which I guess like you said, Ian, can be interpreted all sorts of different ways. Is that the effective range? Is that the range with some buffer? We don't know at this point. This aircraft won't enter service until the end of the decade, if at the earliest. So I'm sure those numbers will probably change a bit as battery technology hopefully advances a bit. But that number does not give you a lot of operational wiggle room. If you're operating it on a flight of 150 miles, which is well under the maximum 250 mile range. If that flight is put into an airborne hold, that could add a lot of mileage to an otherwise pretty short flight. So they're not going to have much time to do any airborne holding. And like you said, Ian, if they divert to an airport that's not expecting this aircraft, it's not like they can put some jet A in the aircraft in 15 minutes and take back off again. What do you do there? If you're operating, a, let's say, a Dulles to LaGuardia flight and you divert because of thunderstorms to, let's say, College Station in Pennsylvania, what if they're not expecting that aircraft? Or, or have- even just Newburgh, you know, right. if, if you go up to Stewart. Do you plug it into a 110 volt outlet, like a, a level one charger and wait 27 hours for the aircraft to charge? <laughs> this is something that electric vehicle drivers are very conscious of. If they are very aware of how far their aircraft can go. They know where they can charge. And 
sometimes routes are specifically drawn up to make sure that they have places to divert to. If one play, if they know they can charge somewhere, but that charger might be broken or full, that they know they have somewhere else to go to, that's going to be logistically very different and very complicated when it comes to an airplane that you can't just plug in and charge very quickly, like you might be able to refuel an aircraft. Yeah. I mean, and certainly developing that infrastructure is going to be something that airlines are going to have to work with airports to do. I mean, if you're talking about enough charging power to charge an aircraft, and we're not talking about like a a four-person, five-person eVTOL here, we're talking about a 19-seat aircraft or 19 passengers. So, I mean, one assumes 21 seats at least. Plus flight attendants, so even more than uh, that. So maybe you know, twenty. Yeah. So then, uh, oh, that's a whole different podcast. Uh-huh. Episode. Uh, so okay, you picked up where I was going with that. It's a whole different podcast episode. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that, that size of an aircraft is going to require a substantial infrastructure improvement. So then, are those aircraft limited to certain gates? And if they're limited to certain gates, what happens to the aircraft that would normally operate at those gates? There are much smarter people who run airlines working on these problems. But these are some of the things that I'm thinking about. I thought there was a particularly funny tweet from Andrew Poor, who you might remember from a long time ago on the podcast. We should get him back one of these days. But he has this image in his head. I'm reading this off Twitter. I just have this image in my head of a big modified GPU at small outstations being plugged in to charge these things, meaning electric aircraft, using diesel. What he means there is basically they would be charging up the aircraft using a ground power unit powered by a diesel generator on the ground, which is about the dirtiest way you could probably charge up an aircraft. And it's just, he's probably not wrong. He's probably not wrong. Yeah. I want to stop and say that this is all good stuff to be moving in this direction. But there is a reason Airbus has already shifted to hydrogen. This stuff is complicated. Right. This stuff is extremely complicated. And there's a whole host of caveats and and carve-outs and what-ifs and things like that that will dictate which of these, I mean, technologies and forms of propulsion win the day eventually. But I mean, I think it's good to be moving in this direction. And I feel like, you know, for small aircraft, if they can figure out the battery density, if they can get the weight right, if they can get the size of the aircraft right, for shorter trips, I mean, electric propulsion is probably the best way to go in the long run. Yep. How you get to that point is going to be, I think, a lot of stutter steps and a lot of head scratching going, oh, I don't think that's going to work. And then finding something that eventually does, and that becomes the industry standard, and then you build from there. Yeah, it, it, I think it's going to be very similar to how electric cars here in the U.S. have shaped up that very much the chicken and egg situation where they don't want to build the charging infrastructure until there's a critical mass of cars, but they don't want to have a critical mass of cars until there's a critical mass of charging stations. So then it's kind of a stalemate where nobody does anything until Tesla comes in, it does its own proprietary thing, which is only good for Tesla drivers. But hopefully that's not the case here where we have airports that only have Heart aerospace chargers and Archer aircraft can't use it. That would suck. Let's not. Yeah. Let's yeah. avoid that future. But no, electric propulsion for these smaller aircraft makes a ton of sense. It opens up possibilities to connect routes that just are not profitable for airlines using larger aircraft. Remember, United really doesn't like operating anything smaller than. 76 seats. It has 50 seaters, but it's phasing those out right now. They're, they just actually removed them all from Newark, except for the CRJ 550s. That's a whole different story. 
But it's interesting on a whole other topic that United would even want 19-seat aircraft when it doesn't even want 50-seat aircraft. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that says something about what it's thinking for the future of its route network and the future of how people connect to to their hubs. Yeah, there's a whole separate conversation to be having about the size of this aircraft and the benefits that United's looking at. And perhaps we'll return to that in a future episode. Yep. And by uh, 2029, maybe we'll have a, a podcast where we take a, an eVTOL aircraft from Manhattan to Newark, a supersonic boom aircraft from Newark to LA, and then I guess 19-seater from LA to, let's say, Long Beach, or why not? Okay. That's the future in 2029, according to United's fleet strategy. All right. Episode 120, we called it on the 14th of July, 2021. And we'll revisit in eight years and see see how right or wrong we were. Well, the supersonic part over domestic flights is definitely wrong. Well, there's that. Let's go to uh, our friends in the north that we talked about last week. We got the fresh restart news from Porter. And that we talked about that last week. And then, of course, I am blaming us or or congratulating us because we talked about Porter last week for them finally coming public with their E195 E2 order, which was reported. They denied it. It was reported again. They still denied it. And then they said, actually, what it was is, yeah, it was us. Liam News had this scoop. It feels like an eternity, you know, months or weeks ago, and then Porter just kept denying and denying and denying. But yeah, like I said, lo and behold, it's true. But Porter has ordered 30 firm and 50 options of the Embraer E195E2, the manufacturer's largest type. And because its current airport, the Toronto City Island Airport, I forget its actual Billy name. Billy Bishop. There. there you go. That airport, they are not allowed to operate jet aircraft in there, which is why Porter only operates the Dash 8 Q400s right now. So if they're going to operate these E195E2s, they have to go across town and south a little bit to Pearson and start a whole new operation at a whole new airport. And that's exactly what they're going to do. That'll be an interesting thing to see. It'll expand Porter's reach both within Canada and in the US whenever people can travel between Canada and the US again. A really interesting kind of order that I'm fascinated to see how quickly they grow the airline you know, based on just having having jets. And then what happens to that prop fleet that they operate? Is there a transition and how quickly does that last? Or do they say, no, we really like these for you know as long as we can keep them. And this is the core of the airline is the Dash 8. I mean, yeah, well, at some point, it's not going to have a choice because they don't make the Dash 8 anymore. Okay, fair. Um, and those but aircraft then, will be retired at some point. But that, by then, maybe off. there will be an ES-104 or something sure. like that. Why not? But yeah, Porter put up a map of possible destinations. That's their terminology. And it, it's dotted all over the US. They cannot fly the Q400 anywhere, but they have flown it to Florida <laughs> in the past. That's a longer flight on a no, Q400 than I would want to fly. But they can fly the E195 E2 basically anywhere in the United States. They have lit up on their map San Francisco, LA, Phoenix, Denver, Orlando, Miami. And they call out specifically the Caribbean and Latin America, but only one dot is on their map in the Caribbean, and that would be Nassau, Bahamas. So I guess they really want to serve Nassau? Who doesn't? 
Yep. Or they say the West Coast, sunny spots in the southern United States, Mexico, and the Caribbean. Very interesting to see if Canada can sustain another major airline of this size. They already have Air Canada. They have Rouge. They have WestJet. They have WestJet Encore. They have Flair. They have – who else do they have? Sunwing. Sunwing, yeah, but they're uh, Air Transit more, because yeah. Air Canada couldn't gobble them up. So that's yeah. a lot of major airlines for a country of not a huge population. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. Some of the the discussion I've seen has centered on the fact that Air Canada and WestJet pulled back enough capacity that poor might be able to take advantage of that. But I don't know on what time horizon that's an accurate statement. Yeah. Well, good luck to Mr. Porter. Again, one of my top two favorite airline animal mascots. And I hope he has fun with his new fleet. (laughs) We need to do a full episode devoted to airline animal mascots at some point. Let's talk about Richard Branson briefly because- Okay, make it quick. the, The man has gotten enough press. I don't actually want to talk about him, but what I do want to talk about is a conversation, shall we say, that you and John Ostrower had after Unity 22 went up, came down, Richard Branson took his celebratory lap and and they did all that fun stuff. John's proposition was that aviation has always started as the purview of those who could afford to do the risky, expensive thing and then has filtered down. You disagreed with that in this particular case, and, and I would like to hear more about that. Yeah, that was my hot take, and it wasn't so much a conversation because I was on a train underground and couldn't respond. But John said, and I quote, I think one thing to keep in mind is that new frontiers of commercial travel have always started as the exclusive purview of the ultra-wealthy. Space, like atmospheric flying before it, is no different. And I disagree. I will quote myself and say, I see this differently. Atmospheric flying was something so new, so useful, so different that people thought it was magic. Space travel, and I'm putting travel in quotes, on the other hand, isn't really travel and it's not new. It's a tourism rocket that normal people in my lifetime probably won't get to ride. And Jason, I more agree with you. I don't disagree with John's statement as far as terrestrial aviation is concerned, but I I more agree with you when we're talking about space stuff, especially since really what we're talking about, and you, you correctly, I think, used travel in scare quotes, because it's not travel. And we don't really have the expectation that there will be travel anytime soon. No one's going to take off at New Mexico and fly to, I don't even know where you would land. Balkanor. Yeah. I mean, no one's going to be doing that anytime soon and whatever comes after soon. The travel part, I think, is the issue here. Is there a time horizon in which we can use space planes to get from one side of the earth to the other? Sure. But the expended energy until you find some a different way to launch yourself into space just doesn't make any sense. We keep talking about you know the airlines and coming up with more efficient ways to do things. Jet aircraft are incredibly efficient at moving a lot of people a long distance. Did we have to trade a bunch of speed away for that? Sure. But that's just where we're at. And I don't see space travel becoming a thing remotely soon. No. Soon with multiple O's, many, many O's in soon. 
again, because this is not travel. It's rich people being shot up and in, in some cases shot up in a rocket and then coming back down to exactly where they took off from. Or in Virgin's case, a plane holding a spaceship or a rocket ship that goes up into high altitudes. What are they, like 60,000 feet before they detach it? Or is it more like 40,000 feet? It's about the end. They something like that. Then they yeah. shoot up and they go 80 kilometers or something like that up into uh, the atmosphere. And then they come Space-ish. back down. Space-ish. Yeah. Space-ish. There was that – I did quite enjoy that billionaire's dispute about does Virgin Galactic even go to space? The 80 versus 100 kilometer – was it kilometers or miles? Either way, one billionaire disagrees that the other billionaire actually went to space. I think they should have a donate off to settle it. Sure. Sure. To us, to the podcast. Yeah, sure. Space travel in the beginning, the early days of space exploration and the Apollo missions and the space shuttle missions, those all had scientific goals. And yes, the technology used to advance those programs absolutely did trickle down into commercial aviation. But here, I just don't see that happening. Space travel or space flight, I guess, is not a new thing. I don't know what new technologies have been developed to support Richard Branson going into space extremely briefly that will be translatable into commercial aviation that will help us lower emissions or go faster without spending more emissions or or whatever. I just don't see this current iteration of space tourism having anywhere near the same impact that the Wright brothers did when they first flew the Wright Flyer that very quickly over decades went from a novel scary concept to airmail and then from airmail to passengers and then to the A380. I just don't see that happening with space travel that we see today. Yeah. I mean, and to, I guess, put a positive spin before we move on, I don't think they did either. And so I'm really hoping you're wrong. Me too. But I, I don't think you are. I would love to go to space in my lifetime, but I have enough trouble hoping that the A-train comes within 20 minutes. So I have other problems to think about rather than going to space for four minutes. What you're saying is that there are other more pressing problems to solve. Yes. Fair Like enough. electric aircraft. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about the 787, shall we? Oh, okay. There are fresh quality issues with the 787 in the front of the aircraft this time. The 787 was previously, deliveries were previously halted, work was done to correct issues on the rear of the aircraft with the shimming. We talked about that in a previous episode. There will be a link in the show notes because I can only say shimming so many times before it's one of those words that ceases to have any sort of meaning. But now there is an issue with the gaps in the forward pressure bulkhead Boeing says that this is something that requires rework, but does not, quote, compromise the safety of flight, end quote. So it's a problem, but you could still fly the planes, but don't fly the plane. We're going to fix it, and then we'll give it to you. So to fix the problem, they're slowing the rate of production below the current five per month for the 787, and there's 100 aircraft that are almost ready to go out the door. And instead of delivering a vast majority of those, as Boeing said earlier in the year, they will now deliver only about half of those. So about 50 77s by the end of the year will go to their final customers. So not great. No. And and Boeing has also said it has only managed to deliver 14 787s this year, which is up from the beginning of the year where it was not being delivered at all. But a dozen plus two is not great. No. And 
that's certainly something that I think they should fix. Yeah, that's I mean, in general, they are adamant that this is not safety issue that the issue itself is measured in millimeters that i guess over time could become a problem but oh, man yeah i mean aer- aerospace tolerances i mean we're talking you know thousands of a millimeter hundreds of a millimeter etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean you're talking tiny tolerances and if they're out of tolerance you're not talking about like a gap that you could stick your hand through but it's still something that needs to be fixed so i get that but again the more they look at it the more they find things. Yeah, not great. Not very confidence boosting for the 787, but I'm sure they will figure this out and they will get production down in South Carolina all figured out and these aircraft will come off the line reliably and and safely and we'll be able to fly without leaving anything inside or having something wrong with the front pressure bulkhead or the rear pressure bulkhead or whatever with this aircraft. They've been building it for long enough that you'd think they'd have it down at this point, but at least they're finding these issues, I guess, before they become an actual issue. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Let's stick with the 787 for a moment and talk about what happened a few weeks ago. The British Airways 787 that was preparing for a cargo flight in London and the nose gear retracted and that led to the aircraft going boom on its nose. And the UK AAIB, the Air Accident Air Accident Air Accident Investigation Board. There. Air I got accidents. it. Accidents. It's plural. Air Accidents oh, plural. Investigation My Branch. Accident. There you go. Okay. So I didn't get it out. But I tried. Anyway, they released a, a preliminary report and a warning statement that said, hey, be aware of this, something that operators should have probably already been aware of considering that there was an existing airworthiness directive calling some attention to it. But what happened was, is they were performing some necessary maintenance tasks on the aircraft, one of which required cycling the gear while the hydraulic power was on to the aircraft in order to make the gear not actually go anywhere you put a pin in the nose gear. There are two holes on the Boeing 787 nose gear that are the same size, and they are next to each other. If you put the pin in one, the gear doesn't move. If you put a pin in the other, the gear still moves. Guess which one the maintenance guy put the pin in? Well, there's, there's a bit of a story about that, isn't there? Why don't you tell it? Well, I sit over here, mute my mic, and laugh a little. Okay. Well, apparently, the maintenance technician who knew about this and where to put the pin in the right hole wasn't tall enough to put the pin in the correct hole. So they called over another employee instead of getting a ladder or step stool or something, and they called over another employee to put said pin in said hole, and said backup employee put the pin in the wrong hole. Yeah. Can't make Again, that up. Again, when something happens in aviation, it is very rarely just one thing going wrong. And remember, this is not the first time this has happened, since there was an already an airworthiness directive out there that BA had some time to comply with. So this aircraft was still in compliance. It takes yeah, oh yeah, long, yeah it we, takes we a should, long time apparently to put a stop thingy in a hole and landing gear, I guess. But this had happened back in March 2019 
where the very same thing happened. The AAIB says the insert prevents the NLG download pin from being inserted in the Apex pin bore instead of the adjacent NLG download pin hole. And, well, they put it in the wrong hole. <laughs> and the nose gear retracted and much damage ensued and much money was withdrawn from someone's bank account. Yeah, I'm sure the insurers were very happy to process that claim. That's got to be an interesting job. We should find that person and have them on the podcast. An insurance adjuster that deals with aircraft. Sure. I know it exists. It's got to. And we should find that person and have them on the podcast for a future episode. But luckily in all of this, only one person was injured and their injuries were minor and they were probably just very, very, very mad at one of their maintenance co-workers. So I guess that's the good news out of this particular episode. An understandable accident. Yes, unfortunately. Let's take a quick break, catch a breath, and then we will come back and talk about Airbus and Boeing's shall we say, very different approaches to their customers. And whatever Saudi Arabia has decided to do with its brand new airline, Jason's going to have to explain that one to me because I still don't understand. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back. And Airbus versus Boeing over the past year has been a very interesting, changing, evolving competition. And Airbus has clearly been the winner as far as that competition is concerned. But the Wall Street Journal had a very interesting article about how they're winning that competition. And Jason, you you kind of dug into the numbers and we were both pretty astounded by the different tacts that each manufacturer has taken. Yeah, this article out in Wall Street Journal by Benjamin Katz today, yesterday, I believe, so that would be Tuesday by the time you're listening to this, lays out a bit of a very different tactic deployed by Boeing and Airbus, which is actually kind of the opposite I would have expected. Throughout the pandemic, airlines obviously were extremely strapped for cash. They were going bankrupt left and right, and they just did not have the money to spend on new aircraft deliveries. As it turns out, the way it works is that the majority of the funds that an airline will spend on an aircraft is transferred at delivery of the aircraft. So if an airline is struggling financially, as pretty much all of them did during the early days of COVID, they're going to want to defer or cancel as many aircraft deliveries as they can because they just couldn't spare the money at that particular time. And the WSJ article really gets into an interesting split in attitude in that Boeing unexpectedly was very amenable to changes to order deferrals and cancellations and delays of new aircraft, probably because Boeing can't afford to be a jerk at this point between the MAX and the 787. It really needs to kind of play every nice card it can at this point. I mean, we just saw today that uh, Fly Dubai is revising down its total number of 7.3 MAX orders by 65 aircraft to 172. So a lot of airlines took advantage of COVID, or not took advantage, but reacted to COVID by whittling down their orders. On the other hand, Airbus had a very different strategy of too bad, give us the money and take your airplane and go home. Very 
unexpected since Airbus, uh, according to the article, have been much more amenable to work with airlines in the past to defer or modify orders. But this is apparently a new Airbus with a new CEO who is very much of the opinion that contracts are contracts. Your word is your bond. And if you order an aircraft, you're going to take it when it's ready and you're going to pay us when you take it. The numbers really speak for themselves. So I'm quoting from the article last year, Boeing customers canceled 655 jet orders and said an additional 723 were unlikely to proceed. That's according to Boeing's monthly order and delivery data. Most of those were 737 MAX jets. Airlines and lessors were able to walk away without much of a fight because of the plane's months-long grounding. Airbus, meanwhile, agreed to just 115 cancellations, mostly as a result of airline bankruptcy, according to airline records. So this wasn't even really just Airbus giving airlines a break and canceling deliveries or deferring deliveries. It's because these airlines are bankrupt or no longer exist at all. So that is a very surprising difference that Boeing would be the nice guy and let airlines cancel deliveries while Airbus basically said, no, give us the money. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. I didn't think they would be opposites of what they are, but I did not expect the numbers to be so stark. Yeah, they are uh, very especially stark. On, the, on the Airbus side. Yeah, that, that's uh, yeah. nearly over a thousand aircraft potentially versus 115. Yeah. Tell me about what Saudi Arabia thinks it's planning on doing here, because I still don't understand the point of this or why you would even want to do this. And I, I don't know. This one's interesting. This was published by Airline Weekly today, actually. Uh, Saudi Arabia thinks its new airline can dethrone the Middle East legacy carriers. Okay, so this is a very good article, and I recommend anyone who is interested in this go read it on Airline Weekly. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yep, link in the show notes. But Saudi Arabia wants in on the Middle Eastern mega airline trend, even though they're a couple decades late, and it kind of wants to transition Saudi to like a religious Hodge airline, so not really a, a global connecting airline that they tried to be in the past, but not really. They kind of want to push Saudi to the side to do other things and start up a new Middle Eastern super airline hubbed in Saudi Arabia to connect people from A to C via B, B being Saudi Arabia. But the plan is just confusing to me because for one thing, Qatar, Emirates, and Etihad have decades of experience. They have decades head start. And as it is, the market cannot sustain the three of them. Emirates and Qatar seem to do okay, but Etihad tried to become the global super connector along with Emirates and Qatar and just they couldn't do it. They tried buying their way into it with other random airlines like Air Berlin, rest in peace, and it just did not work. <laughs> so now Saudi Arabia thinks it can come in and be the fourth major airline, even though Saudi Arabia is well behind the other Middle Eastern countries when it comes to personal freedoms, and they don't serve alcohol on board Saudi aircraft because it's not allowed in Saudi Arabia. You can't even, I mean, they only got movie theaters in Saudi Arabia like a couple years ago. Dubai is a cosmopolitan city. There are some limitations to what you can do there, but for the most part, it's a westernized city. You can go and you can enjoy yourself and have fun. Nobody is going to enjoy a stopover in Saudi Arabia and do anything, I guess. I, I don't know what you would do there, but I don't want to have a layover 
and Saudi Arabia. Well, I don't see how it could compete with the other Middle Eastern airlines. I just don't understand. Setting aside all of that, setting aside the fact that it just another country trying to replicate this model, it just doesn't make sense to me purely from a business model standpoint. Before you even add in where you would be stopping over, how that would work, where would you stop over in between, the route network would have to come from somewhere, and right now it doesn't really exist at all. And I think the article mentions this is in Turkish Airlines through Istanbul connects an innumerable amount of people. It's not just the three Mideast Airlines. You've got Turkish as well playing this huge connecting role. And people love connecting in Istanbul uh, or, or loved the old airport, still learning to love the new airport, I guess. But this has already been done. Why not do something different? Well, because Saudi Arabia is obviously very invested in the energy sector, let's say, oil, and it wants to diversify its economy like Dubai did. 20, 30, 40 years ago, they saw the writing on the wall, I guess because their oil reserves were running out, and they pivoted to hospitality and aviation and entertainment, and that worked out very well for Dubai, and I guess to a lesser degree, Eddie had in Abu Dhabi, and also to some other degree, Qatar and Doha. I don't see how there is possibly room for a, a Saudi Arabian mega airline especially with their conservative views. I mean, Saudi has a dress code. Did you know that? I did. I don't know what it is. Well, I don't either because they don't tell you what it is. They just say that it exists. I do not want to fly an airline with a dress code, which is ill-defined. Does it mean no shorts? Do women have to wear long sleeve shirts? I don't know. I don't want to find out. Fair enough. These are the problems a Saudi Arabian mega connecting airline would have to put up with. And I don't think or, that country is quite ready for it. Or would it be different because they're going after this, you know, mega connecting? The whole plan is just very strange to me. It's a lot of money to spend for a very questionable return. There you go. That is the summation that I was looking for. Very quickly, before we say goodbye for this week, United's second oldest 777 is on its way to Honolulu, then Guam, then Shaman 4 for maintenance. It is one of the Pratt & Whitney engine inspection affected aircraft. It's been sitting in the desert for a little bit, and now it's back in the air. There's a rumor that seems well-founded because this particular person on Twitter seems to know what they're talking about, that the affected aircraft from the Denver engine failure will be moved to the desert tomorrow. So that would be yesterday, if you're listening to the podcast when it first comes out on Friday, on Thursday, this week, the 15th of July. So that'll be something to look out for. And then the fine folks at JetBlue have gone to London on their first proving flight. So that took place this week and they were delayed, Jason? Of course they were. So it's a summer <laughs> flight out of JFK in the evening. If you are going to simulate a flight for operational readiness from JFK to Heathrow, it has to leave late. There you go. If you leave early, it's not realistic and the, the results are flawed. <laughs> so that happened. And then regular services are supposed to start the beginning of August, first week of August, I believe. Or second, technically the second week of August, the 8th, if I'm correct in my numbers. But that is coming up. And then to close the show... All the reporting was correct. Delta is taking A350s from LATAM, 737-900ERs from Lion Air. They confirmed it. They're going to refurb the A350s, and it sounds like they're going to 
to give the 737-900s a real good cleaning or something. I, it was unclear to me whether or not they were going to deltify them straight away. I would hope so. And if I'm taking aircraft from Lion Air, I'm going to give them a nose to tail inspection very well. I'm sure that that will be part of the lessor's retaking or replacing of the aircraft. If only we knew someone who would transport these aircraft from Asia out to Atlanta. Do you know anyone? We need to have like a weekly check-in with Steve. Where is he? Just where is Steve? That'll be there our There are 29 737-900ERs that need to go to Atlanta. So where is Steve? He's on one of them. No, he Steve right now is actually, he's in China right now. He's flying 737s between two cities in China. And judging from the Twitter posts that he's making, it's an interesting experience. We'll toss a link in the show notes just to round out the show. And you can follow along with whatever he's up to. This has been episode 120 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.